The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. ...of a five-week series that we're starting on one of the basic teachings of the Buddha, which is called the Five Spiritual Faculties. And these are confidence or faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So Buddhism is really about the human potential to overcome greed, hatred, and delusion, and to realize the highest happiness of peace and freedom. So this focus is on cultivating these human faculties that we all have to different degrees and that can lead us on this path. So this list can be seen as representing an arc of development from the initial inspiration to to take up this path that then inspires us to make the effort to learn how to be mindful. And as we learn how to be mindful, the concentration grows. And as concentration grows and all these faculties come together and balance each other, then wisdom and insight can arise. And uh, so in that way, it can be seen as an arc. And they also balance and support each other as they're all developed at the same time. So energy and concentration balance each other and faith and wisdom balance each other. The the conviction and inspiration aspect of faith is needed in order to make the effort. And then we need this trusting sense of faith in order to keep that open, non-grasping attitude of mindfulness alive. You need kind of even more trust in letting go of control and understanding, letting go of distractions in order to get into deeper states of concentration. And then all these help wisdom arise. But then it's the open quality of faith that balances wisdom. There's a tendency as wisdom and insights arise to think, oh, now I've got it, now I've got it. And that, but it's just a continuous unfolding. So that open-ended quality of faith. And then wisdom keeps faith from stopping at blind faith in something that you really haven't seen for yourself. So tonight I want to talk about the first one of these qualities, which uh, the Pali word for it is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A. And it's usually translated as faith or confidence. The word faith has issues for a lot of people. It brings to mind some of our views or experiences of some uh, our understanding of some other traditions where we feel like we're asked to believe some authority and to take something on that we that we don't really understand or some metaphysical view. But the word sadha is related to the word for heart. I've heard it literally means to place one's heart upon. So there are lots of English words that can be used to talk about it. So there's, for example, the intellectual conviction or belief. There's a heartfelt emotional tone of faith or devotion. There's an openness and serenity to a word like trust. There's a sense of inner strength and courage that comes from a word like confidence. So all these are aspects of sadha. And some degree of one or more of these senses has probably led you to be here tonight. So I'm sure you know what this is in some degree. A small but key moment on my own journey came. It crystallized a lot of vague discontent and spiritual longing that I was having. At the time, I was reading Walden over and over again and while looking for a software job and going on interviews and stressing out. And and it was my 40th birthday, and my father gave me a book called uh, 
coming into our fullness, women on turning 40. And one of the women who was interviewed was Natalie Goldberg, who's a writing teacher. And she had an essay mentioning her involvement with Zen with this wonderful quote. Um, She said, Perhaps this is the message more than any other I'd like to give to the world, especially to Americans who are so easily bored and run around looking for anything new, that you stay with something because that's how you deepen your life. Otherwise, you are always on the surface. And that really grabbed me, that notion, the word deep and the idea of staying with something. And I feel like this this power to stay with something, the sticking power, through thick and thin of what it really takes to deepen your life in this way is is what this sadha quality brings. And then it's also the part of the fruit of the practice, the confidence and the trust to face the unknown over and over again in each moment. So first let's explore a little more this the intellectual aspect of this, the rational aspect of how we come to believe in something to the point of the threshold where we really want to act on it. It's in, in a way, it's in contrast to doubt, but really it's in contrast to certainty. So the primary invitation of the Buddha is to come and see for yourself. There's this word, ehipasiko, it means come and see for yourself. I know for myself in the beginning, I appreciated the fact that this was a beginnable thing. It had a small, practical start. It was not threatening to my self-confidence, and it didn't arouse any of my kind of anti-authoritarian resistance streak and it didn't it didn't bother the gatekeeper of my scientific bent in my mind it was just something well sit down look see see what it feels like to be yourself and that was so startable so how do we decide what course of action to follow or what to believe and what to take on from the whole marketplace of ideas about how to be happy The Buddha lived in a culture where this question was very much up in the air. It was a culture of wandering teachers, and they all disagreed with each other, and they were, you know, putting each other down, ridiculing each other's teachings. So one day the Buddha came to these people called the Kalamas, and they asked him, how do we know what to believe? How do we decide what is right? And here's the Buddha's famous reply. Of course you are uncertain, Kalamas. Of course you are in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this person is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. And likewise, when you know for yourself, these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. So Buddhism isn't asking you to believe anything without really looking at your own experience of what's leading to harm and ill and what's leading to benefit and happiness. 
But that's easy to say, but we're naturally pretty deluded about that. The Kalama Sutta goes on to ask, what do you think, Kalamas, when greed arises in a person, does it arise for welfare or for harm? And of course, they all say, oh, for harm, you know, definitely. But look at what's happened in our country the last few months. I mean, it's not so obvious when greed has gone off the road and, you know, what, when are we being greedy? When, when are we just, you know, I live in a three bedroom condo by myself. Is that, is that greedy? I, I don't know. <laughs> I suppose, relative to the rest of the world. So it's quite a long exploration, a personal exploration of what is what is being greedy. Um, it's not obvious, and this is where we need to let our inherent wisdom faculty help us balance the tendency to just fall for the social conventions that we live with. One of the phrases in that advice to the Kalamas is that you should pay attention to what the wise say. You don't just make up your own mind. But, of course, it's up to you to recognize who the wise are in the first place and decide what you want to take on of what the wise say. But, you know, you, you find people who are wise and then you you give extra people that strike you as wise. And then when they say something you disagree with, it has a little extra weight and you pause and think about it and investigate it for yourself. The discourses of the Buddha list four conditions that lead to the development of conviction or faith in this path. The first one is association with good or wise people, meaning generally the sangha of those who have some degree of enlightenment. So really looking at closely at who we admire and whose values we value over the long run. Which people do we feel safe with? Who do you turn to for for advice? Really soak yourself in their example and in the, the vibrations from being around these kinds of people. The second one is listening to the Dhamma, listening to the true Dhamma. You know, that involves really studying, listening to the talks, getting some guidance. It's it's not quite so obvious what's meant by mindfulness and what, what we need to pay attention to in order to in order to learn how not to suffer. So there's a lot of room for really studying, listening, coming here, listening to the talks, listening to different teachers, learning what the teaching really is. And then moving into putting it into practice ourselves, there's appropriate attention. So we need to learn a new way to focus our attention, which is this essence of mindfulness, of letting go of our preoccupation with the objects of what we want and what we don't want, and instead turning to look at the feeling of wanting and not wanting itself. That's the basic turn of wise attention. And then practicing in accordance with the Dhamma. Really looking at what, you know, given given the way it feels to want things and not want things, how can we practice and learn to uh, live more skillfully? So in the Buddhist tradition of talking about faith, there's a distinction that's made between bright faith and verified faith. The inspiration and the models of what we get from looking at, from associating with good people and from listening to the Dhamma can serve to ignite our bright faith. Um, And then as we pay attention and verify it for ourselves, it turns into verified faith. There's a wonderful book by Sharon Salzberg called Faith. If you're interested in this subject, I highly recommend reading that book. She defines bright faith. She says, bright faith is seen simply as a beginning and not a beginning in which we surrender discriminating intelligence, but rather one in which we surrender cynicism and apathy. Its abundant energy propels us into the unknown. 
So some of us may begin with that kind of bright faith, that kind of inspiration and enthusiasm and and idealism. Some of us may begin more out of desperation and, you know, close to despair. And then we hear, well, you should meditate. Okay, I'll try that. <laughs> it's not exactly bright faith. Um, but, you know, either way, you know, the people who begin full of idealism, if they're going to make it real and turn it to verified faith, it has to be tempered and integrated with the hard work of really looking at at your difficulties and the people who begin in despair may be surprised to find moments that inspire a brightening of their faith. The bright faith holds us while we train ourselves to learn the skills. These faculties that we're studying over these weeks are, you know, they occur in all of us, but in different strengths and they need to be cultivated. They need to mature and uh, they're not there right away. And doubt is actually not not opposed to faith in this sense. It's a companion all along the way, real doubt. It's goading us to look more deeply and to find the real truth for ourselves, not just taking someone's word for it. So this kind of doubt, the kind that keeps us asking, do I really know what this means? Have I seen this for myself? Does this really make sense? You know, Have I really looked as deeply as I can? This kind of doubt is very helpful. There's another kind of doubt that's in in the list of hindrances to practice, and that's really the kind of doubt that keeps us locked in our heads and keeps us grumbling and arguing and resisting so that we don't even try anything. You know, you can keep saying, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to try that. And, And in that way, you never really learn anything. So along the way, the inspiration and the guidance that we get from our teachers It's really important, and not only, I mean, our teachers and the great beings of our time, like the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh, people who are very inspiring to me, and the rest of our friends in the Sangha, and the whole historical Sangha all through history is very important. There's a famous uh, scene in the discourses where Ananda, the Buddha's assistant cousin, asks him, uh, is it true that spiritual friends are half of the holy life? And the Buddha says, no, it's not true. Having spiritual friends is the whole of the holy life. That's really, um, it's true. You need those examples. You need to see what's possible. And there's something that just imprints yourself on watching some, you know, hanging around with someone like Gil week after week, just watching how he responds to people, how he takes things, how his his own ease with himself and his... You know, just being around people like that, it gives you an idea of what's possible as opposed to the celebrities and, you know, people who are held up as examples in our culture. Something that's been important to me that one of my teachers told me is that we need to work with receiving metta and compassion, not only giving it. So I found that that's something that I get from my teachers is, is people that I can picture that they're offering me metta and compassion, even though I can't always feel it for myself. So we need these images to hold and reflect these qualities that we have while we're still stuck in our own self-doubt and self-judgment. But still, it's us who recognize these people and uh, and something in us that recognizes these qualities. Um, There's a verse from the Dhammapada. It goes like this. Even if for a lifetime the fool associates with a wise person, he knows nothing of the Dhamma as the ladle, the taste of the soup. If even for a moment the perceptive person associates with a wise person, he knows the Dhamma as the tongue, the taste of the soup. 
So we're we're all we have the potential to be the tongues tasting the soup, not the ladles, just looking at these people. So in spite of how much the Dharma means to me and how I think I've really turned my life around in a way to devote myself to it, there's still such a strong pull to comfort and to old habits and you know, it's hard to get out of the bed and sit and it's hard it's hard you know, I spend an awful lot of time eating and watching videos for someone who thinks that they're, you know <laughs> on the path in some way. So it's it's so clear to me the difference between times when I'm really motivated by something that I feel like I would call devotion or inspiration and other times when it's just a dry and kind of effort effortful struggle. Um, and one of my teachers talks about a turning point in the motivation for our practice as as falling in love with truth. And I love this, the sense of devotion to the truth in my experience, that there's always something to do in the moment to look a little deeper into what is the truth of this moment and what's happening. And that kind of, that's the sense of devotion more for me than devotion to teachers or something. It's that devotion to the truth, devotion to awareness and devotion to to really finding out what's going on, to being as awake as possible in the moment. But still, in very difficult times, I've needed the support of all kinds of spiritual friends to keep up my faith in the practice. Um, And I find that I need both the bright inspiration of great beings like the Dalai Lama or teachers that I've met that I revere, um, but also a sense of the companionship and the compassion of people who aren't so perfect, you know, teachers, people who talk, friends and teachers who just talk freely about how difficult it's been for them to do this and times that they've struggled in their lives. A sense of fellow travelers going along this path. I went through a period a few years ago when I was experiencing a lot of fear and mental confusion and I just really couldn't practice at all. I couldn't be mindful. I couldn't find my breath. couldn't meditate in any normal way. And I was feeling really afraid. And it in that time, the simplicity of a couple pictures I have of the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh, it really, they carried me through that. I would be able to sit and look at them, and I would just feel this compassion, the sense of what that would be like, you know, that if they knew me, they would be offering me metta. And I just I just felt that, that connection there. I felt safe and held by their encouragement to get through that phase. But in other times, I really, I'm often calling to mind, I think I have a whole index in my mind of every time any teacher has ever referred to any difficulty that they had, you know. Back when I was embarrassed or, you know, back when I found myself, you know, showing off for somebody or, you know, uh, afraid to do something. And, and, and these just play through my mind when I find myself in these difficult positions of, oh yes, that's like so and so when he couldn't do it either or she couldn't do it either. Sharon's book is full of stories like this. It's wonderful. Um, I sometimes feel a connection to somebody like Chogyam Trungpa, the Tibetan teacher. He, he left a wonderful, he died young, but he left a wonderful trail of brilliant writings and great students like Pema Chodron and inspired the Naropa Institute and all that. And yet he was an alcoholic and had all kinds of, you know, various difficulties. So it's really inspiring to me how much good someone can do for the world and still be deeply kind of flawed in some way as a person. Actually, the more I hang around the Dharma and circles and get to know people, it's really the ordinary, everyday, matter-of-fact simplicity that is the most impressive in a way. The self-acceptance and the straightforwardness of people, 
you know. And the kindness, that, that ordinary mind, that lack of self-consciousness, that's what really seems like the fruit of the practice in the teachers and, and in my friends. There's a line from a Zen poem that talks about non-anxiety about non-perfection. That's, that's a great quality. <laughs> so it's back to the human potential of these faculties. It's not, it's not about some exalted state beyond what ordinary people can bring themselves to. I mean, I guess it is, I don't know what Nibbana is. I guess it is an exalted state, but it's something that ordinary people can get to. And the expression of it seems to be extraordinariness. <laughs> um, so some people are naturally drawn to finding inspiration in the external expression of their devotion to people or images through things like bowing and chanting. We don't do too much of that in this tradition here in our community center. We have, I'm glad we have a bell. I'm glad you rang the big bell tonight. Um, I found for myself that I spent a lot of time on retreat and I slowly got, I'm not naturally the devotional type, but through being on retreat, there's something about the repetitive quality of the schedule that slowly seeps in and builds a deep association with the peace that I feel there with things like bells and bowing and walking slowly and then those things carry on into my life and I feel that when I need to touch into some inspiration it's there through some of these what you could call rituals one of the fruits of the first stage of enlightenment is is no longer believing in rites and rituals but what that means is just an understanding that they aren't the directly the cause of liberation it's not because you bowed that you're liberated, but uh, but still, and in in terms of being skillful, means they're part of the web of conditions that help remind us to be mindful, remind us to slow down and let go. Sometimes this process, I guess, it needs to go underground, and we have these plateaus where nothing much is happening, where it's kind of dry and boring. And for some people, if we've established habits like sitting at a certain time, coming here regularly listening to talks, that that these can carry us over these desert patches. I feel like the maturing sense of devotion is less and less dualistic. It's more um, a devotion to the qualities as they arise in ourselves and others alike. I've seen pictures of the Dalai Lama meeting Bishop Desmond Tutu, and they bow to each other, you know, and it just it just feels like wisdom bowing to wisdom and love bowing to love and joy bowing to joy. And it's it's not a personal it's not personal, but yet it is. They they love to see each other and they're reportedly dear friends in a way. So another word that brings up interesting aspects of sadha is the word trust. And to me, this is related to the really essential idea in the Dharma of the practice of letting go, of letting go of clinging, the practice of non-doing. It, to me, it brings it right into the moment of every little moment has a, what you could call a leap of faith in it where we need to let go a little bit. This trust quality is more about it's letting go into a really deep pause before the leap <laughs> arises. I'm, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here about leaping and pausing, but it's like letting the impulse to 
for the next thing to do come from the deepest place that you can settle into. The deepest and wisest place, rather than from the momentum of this anxious, habitual busyness and striving that we're usually caught up in. So there's a sense of the energy from about here on up where we're usually we're kind of top-heavy and busy and there's a lot of momentum. And, and if you can just... Um, that sense of trust, of settling back. It's this trust aspect of faith that really holds the space from which wisdom can arise. A couple of images come to mind here. I was driving with my friend in a car the other day, and and uh, I didn't quite stop. I did one of those stops that I got a ticket for a few years ago, where you you don't you know you just keep the momentum going, and uh, and she called me on it. <laughs> And that reminded me that, you know, that sense where you, when you've really stopped, there's a little rock back, you know. And so play with that in your practice. When you when you sit down, can, you know, sometimes I actually feel that when I've sat long enough, it's like something finally just does naturally really let go. And I, it's very helpful to me to tune into that sense of leaning forward and being you know, pulled forward and then finally... Another um, another more meditative image to me. Maybe we can try this as a little guided meditation if you want to close your eyes for a minute. Imagine that you're a flower. And you've been growing up and up and up and the stem is growing up and up and this tight little bullet shape of a bud is reaching up and reaching up and it's reached its maximum now. And now it can relax It can settle back. The petals can open back, open out. Let the sun warm your face. Flinging back those petals one after the other in the warm sun. Releasing the fragrance. Releasing the pollen. Opening warm sun no more reaching you're there you can just relax back so that's a little flavor of how I feel this trust aspect of Sadha, just okay. I've I've reached a point where I just trust now. But it's not always quite that easy to just trust. It's good when you can, but there's a there's a there are a lot of little passages in our life where we we would like to be able to do that. But it just doesn't happen, you know, and it takes a lot of patience to let the faith carry you over these moments of where it's difficult to just let go. There's often a little wavering tension and uncertainty. Imagine, you know, those monkey paw things where the monkey is holding the, grabbed onto the sweet and won't let go and it's, it's made a fist so his fist is caught in the little trap. And just imagine, I mean, it's kind of brave to let go. 
I, you know, you have to let go and, and, and pull your arm out and you have to give up that sweet and let go. And there's that little bit of tension and a little bit of wavering in there. And it's it's some kind of faith that, okay, this is all for the... They, they tell me this is the way to do this. You know, let go of this and it's going to work. Um, or, you know, maybe the monkey's on monkey bars and you got to let go of one and reach to the other. So the faith that carries you across that. In, in human terms, the moment when you realize that you just need to tear yourself away from your favorite longing if only fantasy or your or your repetitive planning well you need to just let it go and make that effort to refocus your mind on what that feels like and what it feels like is unpleasant which is why we keep doing the fantasy or doing the planning because we're anxious about what's going to happen so of course we keep planning or we really want that relationship or that whatever and so of course we keep longing and planning and fantasizing about it so when we let go it's unpleasant so it's there's a quality of faith that has to carry us over those gaps of of where things are really quite unpleasant um but you know you know through studying the dharma and studying the the theory of the thing you know that that's the kind of suffering if you can stand it for a while, that leads to the end of suffering. Whereas continuing to indulge in the, the longing and the or the revenge fantasy or the whatever it is that is your particular thing, that's the kind of suffering that leads to a dead end, that leads to continuing, continuing to spin your wheels in something that isn't really real. So these periods where we're carried by trust over a kind of a void or a Bardo or something like that, some period of our life where things aren't, where things are unpleasant. They have different flavors. There's a kind of unease. There's a kind of time that I've been feeling recently where it's like the unconscious is working on something and it doesn't know. I don't know what it is. And it's a kind of eerie, creepy feeling. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going on. And I sometimes hear music in my mind and it's kind of weird, you know, little microtones like, I don't know, clouds over the ocean or something. And I don't know what's going on, but and the tendency is so great to want to, ooh, this is kind of icky, let's go eat something or watch a movie or call a friend or something. And it's so much more fruitful to just, you know, stay with it. And I've, I've learned by now, okay, creepy feeling, you know, and it's there's something about, it's some maybe it's some numb parts of the body that are kind of waking up and it's just an unusual feeling. And you can learn to be with an unusual feeling without running out and 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 doing something about it. Sometimes it's the more rational, the conviction aspect of sada that holds me out of the muck, you know, so that I'm not giving in to craving and, and, and aversion. I feel like it's faith that's what's holding my horses when I want to go, you know, charging off and doing something unskillful. Often this amounts to trusting my body and trusting the feeling that it's not that if I'm coming from my head and my hunched up shoulders and my, you know, held breath, that it's not, if I can tune into that, it's not the right, it's not the time to act. It's not cooked yet. I have to, you know, try to get more lower down so that there's a feeling that the impulse to act is really coming from something that's been worked through in whatever mysterious process and the undermined works things through. And there are times when this faith needs to appear in a stronger form as courage. This is another word that comes from the root meaning heart. So it's a very long journey 
peeling back layers and layers of delusion and really coming to face the fact that nothing in the world of objects and situations is ultimately reliable. There's a, a line from a song from the Ojibwe Indians that I've read before that I love. It says, sometimes I go about pitying myself while great winds carry me across the sky. And the Buddhist understanding of what those great winds are is, is really karma, the fruit of the intention of our actions. So if we intend to act out of something that's not greed, hatred, and delusion, then that's the best we can do. It doesn't mean that we're automatically going to get repaid. You know, I gave $10, so somebody's going to, you know, give me $10 tomorrow, or obviously it's nothing silly like that. But, and you don't know what your karma is. You may have, you may be an unlucky, you know, unlucky in some way is another way to put it. But you've done your best by acting in a wholesome way. You've opened up the possibilities of the world for things to go well for you. And you've, you've made yourself non-threatening to other beings. You've made yourself harmless. And, you know, harmless people are generally loved and, and lots of good can come from that. So, um, the intention behind your actions, not what results from them is what's in your control in this teaching. So confidence, this feeling of confidence, which to me is a stronger word, it's in the direction of the fruition of the practice. It's a sunny kind of word, like being carried along by the fruit of good karma or the the knowledge that you've done the best, the knowledge that that you have developed skills, that you've developed these qualities, that you know how to meditate, you know how to turn to mindfulness, you... You understand, you have compassion for yourself when times are difficult. This confidence is, uh, is the fruit of the maturing of the faith faculty. Sharon talks about abiding faith. The subtitle of her book is Trusting Your Deepest Experience. She says that abiding faith is the magnetic force of a bone-deep lived understanding, one that draws us to realize our ideals walk our talk, and act in accord with what we know to be true. So, um, I think I'd like to stop there and hear from some of you about what what's brought you here, what keeps you going, what do you doubt, what do you trust? Anybody want to say anything? Mm-hmm. It's on. Okay. Um, I was thinking you were sort of delineating between two types of doubt. One that's sort of like a type of resistance to growth, and one that is more like um, just sort of sitting still until the uncertainty shows some sort of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Would you even call the first one? Is that like legitimately doubt, or is that more just? Resistance. Well, there's a, there's a, there's, we use the word doubt in connection with this other teaching, so I'm sticking with the word doubt, where there, there are hindrances to, to getting going in the practice, and one of them is doubt. And it's this kind of doubt where you don't even try it, because you just kind of, well, that doesn't, you know, this teacher says that, that teacher says that, you know, heck, I'm not gonna, you know, 
So a lot of people would rather sit around and argue about, you know, how come this person said that and that person says that. Well, I don't know. Sit down and try it for yourself. You know, that's, who knows who's right? You know, sit, sit and try it. So, so that, in that sense, the doubt is not so fruitful to just be stuck in your mind going over and over and over why I can't do this, why I can't do this. But the other kind of doubt is, you know, it might be the opposite of complacency or the opposite of smugness or something. It's a more of an openness to, well, maybe I don't really know, you know. You could, there's, there's another attitude that I have a lot that's, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. I already know that. Don't tell me anything. You're not telling me anything new. I knew that. You know, and in contrast to that, doubt is really helpful, really healthy. You know, well, maybe I don't. <laughs> maybe I should look more deeply. So I'm not, I'm just amplifying what you said. I think you got the idea. There are lots of words you could use for for uh, kind of open-mindedness is the, the wholesome kind of doubt. Is there anything that has helped you um, get through that period of time where you still are leaning forward to the point you described as uh, settling back? You know, the past the impatience, I guess. Is yeah, impatience. Recognizing it, actually recognizing it as impatience. Um, and, and, and just the bare practice of mindfulness, being aware of it. Not, you can't force it. I mean, just letting it lean, feeling it lean, you know, feeling, feeling, feeling all that buzzing, feeling it, feeling it, feeling it. I mean, at some level you can say, well, I tried it and it didn't work, you know, but, how long do you have to try? <laughs> is the, I don't know, going on 15 years now. I mean, it's a cycle. You know, there's a quote I was going to read that, that I'll, I, I decided to stop because I didn't want to just, I wanted to hear from you all. But a little excerpt from a Rilke poem. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. So, you know, I mean, I've been real settled back many times and then real charged up shortly thereafter. So it's uh <laughs> seems to be a you know, it's just a matter we're not we're not trying to find one mind state and log on to it and now I've got it and you know, so many millions of times I feel good in some dimension and I think, Ah, oh, now I've got it, you know. It's not that's not it. It's just when you're leaning forward, lean forward. But you might be aware, just being aware that you are doing that leaning forward, then um, you can think about, is this, do I want to act out of that energy? So there's nothing you can do about, you know, it's not very skillful to try to force yourself to lean back, but it's skillful to notice that that's happening. So I've been doing this ESL tutoring recently, and I mean, when I'm when I'm all forward, I'm stepping on people. I'm correcting them before they have a chance to think of what they want to say, you know. And that's different than that spacious, you know. Let somebody spend a good long time trying to put together a sentence in this new language, you know, before you're there trying to help them, you know. So if you can notice that that forward energy is there, then you can hold your horses and just wait. <laughs> Even if it's unpleasant, you know, it's better than just carrying on with it. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about how to deal with that 
forward energy and wanting to solve in the midst of difficult emotions. Um, I know that's a whole other talk, but um, sometimes I find that it's when I'm stuck in it, the reason why I'm stuck is because I'm trying to fight it. I'm like, go away. I don't want to see you here. I don't want to investigate it. But yet when I actually do investigate it, I see the wisdom or at least parts of it that come out of it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes my tendency is to, okay, figure it out, figure it out. But and the investigation becomes more of an intellectual one mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. let me just feel this excruciating pain in my upper back and my shoulders that have been there for three days. Right. Well, I kind of feel like you've answered it. I mean, that's 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 it. I mean, there that that tendency to want to figure it out. I certainly spend a lot of time there, you know, and struggle with it and analyze it. And if I only understood it, that's that's quite a trap from our whole psychological culture. Not that that's not valuable sometimes, but you know, if I could just understand why I'm doing this, but this is a different way and it's surprisingly effective when you can really just feel what it is that you feel and give that space then it may be that an understanding that in some way relates to why will come up or it might just be that it it un it unhooks and you never know why you know there's not it it's some there's some holding and and the more you can there's actually an energy you know, thinking is an activity, right? And and it's got its own energy. And there's kind of a, a lock where all your energy is up in your head. And if, if the more you can feel into the difference between when you're when you're all up here. So I since I've become more and more aware of that, just trying to stop and say, well, where is the energy? Am I feeling that kind of thing? And if so, really take, you know, I've got some images that work for me to kind of bring it down. Like, I, I, just the other day I saw something about, watch, as a movie I was watching where an elephant was walking. You know, and they're just so slow, just kind of, and they had little, uh, bangles on their legs, you know, and just, little and just the weight of those legs moving and the, the, the hip, the, I can feel if I was an elephant, the way the action works in the hip. Boom. Boom. And just picture something like that, and it really brings the energy down, down into the body. And so, I don't know. I have a lot of visual things like that that help me. But it's remembering to do it, you know. It's that thing like the monkey letting go of the sweet. Okay. <laughs> Much as I want to understand this, it's maybe some other way is more skillful. So, uh, I'm just going to crawl away from the speaker here. Just a so we don't get feedback. Uh, this word for um, faith and confidence, um, uh, what is it again, Paul? Sada, S-A-D-D-H-A. Um, it can also be translated as trust, right? Because mm-hmm. okay. I can remember reading suttas and having aversion to faith. Yeah, right. <laughs> in suttas, and then I substituted it for, for trust. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's, your original question is, you know, why we're all... You want some feedback on why we're all coming here. Uh-huh. And one of the things I do is I keep a meditation journal or it turns into a task list and then like, you know, <laughs> all that, you know, what, what, what have you. 
But um, I was looking at some of my writings, just even from last year, um, and I, I really appreciate that this practice isn't a day-to-day progressive. You know, I, yeah. I'm not expecting progress on day-to-day, but just looking back on where I was one year ago versus mm-hmm. where I am today really is just opening up to this uh, entire great feeling of trust yeah. in the entire process. And uh, I don't really have a question. I just kind of wanted to share that and uh, and make sure that it was this word that can be translated as trust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite translations of this word. I think it's really the quality that that's being talked about. Yeah, it's another thing I really appreciated starting this is that it's not, you know, there's not a bunch of steps that you're supposed to, you know, be here and then you learn that and then you learn that. It just—I mean, you can read some lists that way, but it's just never worked that way for me. It's all over the place, and, and uh, I like it that way. Well, next week we'll be hearing about effort from Cheryl Hilton, and then mindfulness from Jeff Hilton. And then concentration from Mick is here, Mick Bennett, and wisdom from Jen Lemus. So it should be an interesting series. Want to sit for a minute? Always good. <laughs>